before COVID-19 reared its ugly head, substance use disorder and the impact of mental illness were leaving a trail of death, grief, loneliness, and isolation. Shame, guilt, and stigma were the words associated with these two scourges, substance use disorder and mental illness, the two often paired with deadly consequences. Along came a small group of people who said, enough is enough. What can we do to bring caring support and compassion to shine a light on substance use disorder? And so the Safe Coalition was born. But now, six years later, a pandemic decides we haven't had enough. Let's add unemployment, hunger, and profound social isolation to the mix. Now more than ever before, the SAFE Coalition has stepped up to the plate. My name is Ann Bergen, co-host of SAFE Radio. This series of programs created by a group of people to keep shining the light, to bring hope to all affected, saying, you are not alone. We are here to help. It is my great honor today as we start this series to interview two key people who made the SAFE Coalition happen. They found it in their hearts to say, education, not ignorance. Compassion, not guilt. Action, not hand-wringing. I welcome our co-hosts, Jim Derrick and Jen Knight-Levine, two of my heroes. I'm sure they will become yours. And I welcome both of you. And, and Jim, I just hope that, that you would begin telling us about the, the founding of the SAFE Coalition. And that's a way of sort of introducing Jen to this audience because you two are certainly most extraordinary. So I'm gonna turn it to you, Jim, and tell us, tell us about the founding of the SAFE Coalition and how it all came about. Sure, I'd be thrilled to, but before I do that, I have to thank you for that really kind introduction and include you as one of my heroes. Um, you've been a constant, face of education in Franklin, all the way back to my oldest son, Mike Derrick, and uh, now working with you on the Franklin Public Schools Substance Abuse Task Force. Um, I am just so indebted to your service and, and continue to enjoy our partnership uh, with the SAFE Coalition as we try to bring information on substance use disorder and mental health concerns to the public. So thank you very much. And thanks for agreeing to do this show. Oh, my um, pleasure. I'd be delighted to talk about the founding of the Safe Coalition through uh, my lens. Um, I am a dad. Uh, those, that's my qualification to be, to be here today. Um, DAD are the initials I love at the end of my name. I love being a dad. I always wanted to be a dad, and I'm blessed to have three great sons, and I uh, live here in Franklin. Uh, one of my sons suffers from substance use disorder, uh, and I, um, it was a particularly dark time about five years ago, almost six years ago now, when I was really feeling lost and alone, as many, many other people do, uh, in dealing with this. And uh, driving along down Route 140, I'll never forget where I was. It was right in front of uh, the Smiley Face uh, gas station uh, on 140 headed uptown, and I see a sign blinking, and it says, opioid meeting tonight, Franklin High School, 7 p.m. And I looked at my watch and it was 6.58 and I flew through town, got over to the uh, group meeting that was being held in the auditorium, literally ran in, but I had my head down 
I was really nervous about who I was going to see there. I didn't want to be seen as, as someone who had a problem. I certainly didn't want anybody to think my family had a problem. So I was assuming there would be a few people. It would be dark enough where I could get away with sitting in the corner. And to my surprise, there were almost 400 people there. And on the stage, State Representative Jeffrey Roy welcomed us along with the district attorney who was on the panel. Uh, fire chief was on the panel, police chief at the time, a host of mental health professionals, someone in long term recovery and someone who I didn't recognize at all. But as I listened to the evening, realized was the impetus for this entire thing. And that was my friend and now partner, Jennifer Knight. And um, listen to this group of people talk about what was then a real crisis with opioids in particular. We had lost five or six people to overdoses uh, in recent months. And I learned that this young lady, Jen Knight, had been out on the West Coast, having been a Franklin High graduate, and written to Jeff Roy a very passionate email urging him and others to start talking about this publicly and importantly, to maybe to start a support group, to start some conversation. Jen just didn't want to be sitting on the sidelines, attending more funerals. She wanted to do something about it. So I was really taken by the compassion that was coming off of the stage and the information. And candidly, looking around the auditorium, realizing how many of my fellow citizens were impacted so deeply by this crisis, really in that moment, and I realized mm -hmm. I wasn't alone. Yeah. It was so powerful to have that realization because for 15 years, I'd been walking around feeling ashamed, feeling like it was my fault that I had a family member that was suffering, feeling very isolated. I, I went into physician's offices. I went to clergy. I went to psychologists, psychiatrists. Nobody had a good answer as to how to, or any answer in some cases, as to how to treat this illness. And I knew in my gut, I said, this is, this is a serious and chronic mm -hmm. illness that might take his life. But I couldn't even talk to my neighbor about it because I felt so ashamed. And so in this auditorium, I was literally among friends and realized that for the first time that I could speak out loud and that there were people. Again, this was the early beginnings of the formation of what is a coalition. There were key stakeholders mm -hmm. on the stage and they were talking to each other and with us. And it was the opening of a dialogue of and a realization that individually we probably can't solve the problem but together we are exponentially better prepared to tackle this crisis and so comforting jim to know that you weren't alone which so many people think this is just happening to me and that word shame that you used um as part of that description sort of resonates with people that shame and guilt and all of those things and and to know that you weren't alone that was must have been incredible when you first experienced that and i get goosebumps thinking about it now i remember exactly how i felt the meeting concluded i literally ran on, onto the stage i jumped up i didn't use the stairs i jumped up onto the stage I ran over to Jeff Roy, never met him before. I introduced myself and said, Jeff, I want to be part of this because he had talked about having a group meet afterwards. And if anyone's interested to sign up and I, that wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to get right up onto the stage. I, I had no idea what I was getting into. And from there, Jeff invited me to a walk in uh, Milford with uh, state rep, John Fernandez. And at the time we were we were working with John Fernandez on developing this coalition. And Jeff said, come on with me to this opioid walk in Milford. 
And uh, it was from Matt Bertulli, mm. uh, unbeknownst to me, someone who had become my dear friend, Katie Truitt's son, who lost his life to an opioid overdose in 2012. And we did this walk called the Missing Matt Walk. And at the end of it, Jeff said to me, um, Jim, you're, uh, you wouldn't mind speaking, would you? And I thought, you're kidding me. There's, I don't know, 500 people standing out here. There's a newspaper over there. I'm not going to tell people who I am. Are you? And with a little bit of coaxing and a lot of support, I got up and for the first time identified myself as, a, as somebody who is grappling with this issue of substance use disorder and mental health concerns and that I was interested in being part of the solution. And, and it felt like a thousand pound weight mm -hmm. came off my chest. I felt like I could breathe again because to my shock, even then, as soon as I was done speaking, I was embraced with hugs. I was getting people coming up to me saying, me too, let's talk. Can we invite you to a support group? I was introduced to learn to cope. And, and that's where the story just, just for me, really, it really changed my trajectory and the way I was going to deal with this, this illness in knowing that I wasn't alone. And, and the I, power of sharing your story, Jim, too. And, and that was so important that you had that courage to get up there and share your story. And again, letting the people out there know they're not alone. That was courageous of you. Well, you know, it, it may have been or it may not have been, but but the what happened as a result is, as you said, I learned that I wasn't alone. And I share the story today the way I share it, because in I've met so many families, hundreds of families across the nation who are dealing with substance use disorder and working with a loved one that has this illness. And I know what the I know what isolation does to people and I know the power of stigma and the power of shame and how it keeps people out of treatment. And I also know about the wonderful healing that's available through groups now, thanks to the coalition. And I also understand the power of what the safe coalition has done relative to the landscape for, for families. And we'll talk a lot about this as the show goes on, but the entire landscape in Franklin, Norfolk and surrounding communities that we serve has changed as a result of committed people, committed stakeholders coming together around the table saying, we want to be part of the change. And, and it literally saves lives. So I'm, I'm so proud of what has happened and it wouldn't have happened and can't happen without the person we're going to introduce, yeah. <laughs> um, who is the, who is the heart and soul of our organization. Mm -hmm. You talk about heroes, who is my personal hero. Yeah. And, as I've said to her a few times, I think I've referred to her as a mentor of mine, which feels odd because I'm 60. <laughs> and our next guest is, I, I won't tell you exact, her exact age, but it's well under 40. <laughs> and the person I'm referring to is the executive director of the Safe Coalition, Jen Knight-Levine. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you for all those kind words. And Dr. Bergen, it's just, it's wonderful to be here. I'm so excited that we can all talk about this incredible organization that we've all participated in building over the past six years. Jen, I just referred a lot to the early formation of the coalition through my lens. Tell us a little bit about what you were thinking as, as, uh, as you came up with the idea. Sure. So I grew up in Franklin and I had moved away and lived in Southern California for six years. And I moved back 
And that summer I ran into friends and, and family members of friends um, at the local grocery store and the gas station at CVS and a theme that I was listening to and having conversations with folks is that there were a lot of folks that we knew and that I grew up with that were really struggling with substance use. Um, and that summer we had lost, I think, five folks to an opioid overdose. And to lose one young person in a community is a lot. And to lose two is really emotional. And to lose more than that highlights that there's a much bigger concern going on. And so um, having worked in, in mental health and with foster youth for years and running groups and programming, I felt a strong desire to do something in my own hometown. Um, and I had been gone for six years and I didn't really know where to start. So I reached out to our state representative, you know, the guy who works for the people, <laughs> hoping that we could start a conversation and I could just get his ear and his advice. Um, were there programs in the community that were already up and running that I didn't know about? How can I be part of them if there are? And if there aren't, how do we do that? And so in meeting with Jeff, um, you know, we, we both recognized there was a need that there currently was not much happening in our community or the other local communities for those who are impacted by substance use. Um, at the time, we called it substance abuse, another shift that's happened over the years. And so Jeff really connected with, with the local YMCA, and we had a stakeholder community meeting and brought folks together. And the YMCA said, yes, you can start a support group here for parents. And the first support group that we had, no one showed up to. Mm -hmm. And that really highlighted to me that folks are scared to come out of the shadows in the margins of the community. Um, and so in, in meeting with Jeff again and, and explaining to him that we weren't really having a lot of success with this community meeting, but yet we know the, the community is struggling, really ended in a larger conversation of how do we get folks together in the community? And so Jeff said, what if we introduce a community conversation and, and invite the community to come and hear that all of us all community leaders are involved and are impacted by substance use. And we thought that was a great idea. We also thought that no one would come to this meeting because who wants to be seen in a gymnasium um, or an auditorium and on such a, such a sensitive topic. So that day, Jeff wrote on Facebook that he wanted to hold a community conversation for opioid awareness in our community and there would be free pizza. I walked out of his office. Two hours later, he called me and said, we're going to have to cancel the, the pizza order. I thought we'd only have 10 people. There's over 100 that have accepted the invitation. <laughs> so no pizza. That's why there was no pizza. There okay. Was no pizza. <laughs> but really, th that was the beginning, right? So we had that, that June 30th, 2015 community conversation. And that night, Jim, that you attended, the idea was to get people on stage who all were impacted by the opioid epidemic in a completely different way. So the fire and EMS folks were seeing overdose fatalities. The police were really looking at this from a, or a legal perspective. 
we had a pharmacist who was talking with us about what prescriptions looked like um, from a prescribing lens. Uh, we had local clinicians. I, I was up there to kind of talk about the community desire for hope and that everyone in that audience was there because they were hopeful that the way that they were feeling that day is not the way that they needed to feel in five years from now. And the only reason why that event was successful down the road and why people were able to get support is because Jim Derrick jumped up on stage and said, mm -hmm. I want to be part of this. Um, you know, as much as I was interested and excited to start a support group at the YMCA. I truly only thought it would be a support group at the YMCA. Mm -hmm. And it was Jim's desire for change and leadership and wide-eyed desire and excitement to get involved that really, really pushed the coalition to where it is now. Um, I, 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 I could not have envisioned that six years later we would be here providing a host of supports. And there is no doubt in my mind that I would not have been able to do any of this um, beyond a support group without Jim. And I am I so, can't. so thankful. And this whole community should be thankful for, for Jim's ability to be vulnerable and yeah. desire to keep coming to the table with personal experience. Just a reminder, we're speaking with Jim Derrick and Jen Knight-Levine from the Safe Coalition. And we're here on Safe Radio. Don't you think too, I think about the Safe Coalition and the education part, because I remember at the beginning, so much misinformation, this whole idea that substance uh, use disorder was a failure of willpower and that it was a moral failing and people didn't understand it. And that's where the guilt and shame came in with those suffering from the disease. Can, can you speak a little bit about that, what had to be overcome and, and the work that you've done and kind of getting that message out and, and reassuring people that, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, you know, you're suffering and we're here to help. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because it's so important. That's something in that um, until you've experienced stigma directly yourself, uh, it's, it's hard to really fathom how devastating it is. And importantly, it's not just devastating in that it hurts your feelings. That's not what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. It keeps people sick. It keeps people out of treatment. It keeps systems from developing. It is so powerful that it can literally dissolve well-intentioned efforts to get people help. Mm -hmm. My point is it can be a systemic problem. Experientially, what it did for me was it Let's just start at the top. Let's let let's talk about identifying the illness within your family. When you have somebody that's suffering from substance use disorder or mental illness in your family, it's the last thing you want them to have. So what does Jim Derrick do when he's presented with that? He says, there's no way it's that. It's got to be something else. And what does that mean he does? He keeps delaying treatment. And again, this isn't a willful. This isn't something I intended to do. But I realize in hindsight, all of my efforts were geared towards denying that this was the problem, that substance use disorder was was even in the conversation. Said, That's not, no, not in my family. No, it's got to be something else. It must be behavioral. It must be something else. So as a result, my loved ones stay sick and untreated a lot longer than they should. In regards to your question about that education piece, Historically, when we talk about substance use, we talk about the theme of just say no. This right. overarching, 
line just say no. And so if our belief system creates an understanding that someone just didn't say no, and that is why they are now struggling with addiction, that will lead one to think that they weren't able to say no in a moment of weakness and that they're a weak person and that they chose to start using. And what we had to do from a coalition perspective is to provide real science around the disease of addiction, that while someone may have started using a substance because they said yes, their hope wasn't then to become a lifelong user. And certainly when we look at the statistics in our community, the majority of folks who struggle with addiction were prescribed a medication. That's it. And that was huge. Um, The idea that someone who is struggling with addiction is in a back alley really hindered the ability for people to get support quickly. So Jim had just mentioned, you know, not in my family, not here, nothing to see here. That's because there was not a conversation that this could happen around your dinner table. The only understanding that most of us had and most families had is that one, if you just say no, you won't become addicted to anything. And two, what someone who is addicted to substances looks like is in a back alley and is not mm-hmm. in the bedroom next door. Yeah. And so what we really need to do was reshift that understanding, help folks recognize from the top down, that means chiefs of police and fire, high clergy school systems, that addiction is a disease. And that if we start focusing on addiction as a disease, we can come around with a deeper understanding, a new level of compassion, and much broader ways of approaches to working with folks who struggle with addiction and their families. And it has been a grueling six years in that regard, not because people don't want to listen, but because it is so, so hard to shift the mindset when policies and social norms have been circling around this idea that it is a moral struggle Mm -hmm. and not an actual medical illness. And Jen, you spoke of that, that sense of despair in terms of the families, I had a number of friends who within their families had relatives that were suffering from, from this disease. They didn't know what to do. They were helpless. And then the Safe Coalition stepped up and they it was a way to reach out. And, and I think it's important sort of for other people to hear that the resources that you, you were able to provide, and mostly it was it started off with just the two of you, you know, scrambling to find homes and places for people to go and hospitals. And can you talk about that journey a bit? Because I think it will be helpful for other people out there to hear what happened along the way. We started out as a grassroots organization Mm -hmm. and our board at that time was a volunteer board of people that were committed to doing whatever it took to change this landscape, Mm -hmm. whatever it took. One of the things that I heard Jen say very early on in our formation, which didn't make sense to me now and now is a model that we live by. Jen was committed to creating an organization that listened to what the community needed and then responded. Listen to what they want and then respond as opposed to building programming for the community that we thought that they needed and then asking them to populate that programming. As a result, 
I, I can tell you that we started by simply putting a lifeline out and letting people know that we existed and inviting them to the table and met them where they were at. So if somebody wanted assistance uh, finding a detox facility or finding treatment, at least we could have that conversation with them and reduce that barrier to treatment. Oftentimes the barrier to treatment is where do I go? Mm -hmm. Go on the internet and I'm barrage. So who do I have that conversation with? So those early days were focused on meeting people where they were at and trying to give them 10 fingers so that they could get on the road toward recovery. Um, but I think critically, we, we wanted to have this, we wanted to open the table up and invite people in to share with us what their needs were so that we could then in turn respond as opposed to the other way around. I think that it's really important for us to highlight too right now that over the past six years, there's been a lot of learning that Jim and I have done in providing resources to families. And you had shared that families were able to connect with us and we were able to call and get beds and, and provide support and how we provide support now looks a lot different. Mm -hmm. um, and at the beginning, we were focused on meeting with families, hearing them out, and then connecting them with the with the best resource we thought was necessary. And now we are able to take a step back and hear the family's needs and provide various options and opportunities for the style of care that they feel most comfortable with receiving at the moment. And it's so interesting to me because in reflecting back, we, we started out and at times we were almost mirroring the family's intensity. And when we talk about being on a roller coaster with a loved one who's, who's struggling with addiction, if they have a good day, we have a good day. If they have a bad day, we have a bad day. And when I look back on that first year of the coalition, we were really focusing our successes and our areas of development on how a family was receiving the information that we were sharing. And that was something that we have learned along the way that really models both from the coalition perspective and on a one-on-one -on -one perspective, what healthy caregiving and support looks like. We were on the train with families when they would come in that first year looking for support, emotionally um, tied to what their needs were. And now we're able to separate in a healthy space and say, we understand what you're going through. We've been there with you. We've been there too. And this is a variety of resources for you to engage in. And if none of these work right now, we're still here for you. We're not going anywhere. And I think that that's really important because there's been a lived experience in the life of the coalition that I don't think any of us knew we needed to have. And and I don't know if that makes sense or Jim, mm -hmm. if you want to fill in those. Well, I, I, uh, that's the first time I've heard Jen share it with quite those words. Mm. Um, she's absolutely right. And I was the king of, of uh, uh, king rider on that train, on that roller coaster. So basically what Jen's referring to is that we would get typically get a call from a family member who would say, look, my, my son, daughter, niece, nephew, loved one needs help. They need help right away. They need to get in recovery. And this is what I want from you. I want the list of the best detox facilities that we can start them on. So we would respond here's here. I'll, and not only will we do that, but we'll get you, we'll find out where the bed beds are available and you call and you get them into a bed. And now we're all excited. When I say we, I mean the family and us and the service that we were giving them was valuable in that the loved one got into detox. 
But were we really setting up a systemic and sustainable model of care for this family and for the individual? Were we addressing all of the needs? Was it really a holistic approach to the problem? Were there more than one option? Did we really explore what it was clinically that person may have needed in that moment? We were more just acting as firefighters saying there's a fire fine here's the water as opposed to having a conversation uh, with that family so again it was part of our arc of learning when you have those conversations as we've since learned you oftentimes find out that the question just like anything else in life that the question that is presented ultimately isn't the question you wind up answering that the person may be better suited by going off in another direction and we that initial question brings on other questions that we're in turn able to to examine the person's um, situation with and offer solutions that they may never have thought of or offer ways of thinking about it that they may never have thought of. And to really simplify what I'm saying, uh, it would be like me going to the doctor and say, I've got a pain in my back and they look only at my back and don't address the rest of my systems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh, I've got a pain in my back. Well, do you realize that may be caused by something in your lung? So let's take a systemic look at what's going on here and ask many more questions. So um, we have evolved dramatically Mm. since those early days. Um, One of those evolution processes not only was our own learning and understanding, but as we grew, and we can talk a lot more about our growth, but as we grew both uh, in the scope of the services that we were offering and in the territory, it became obvious to us that we needed a full-time executive director. Mm -hmm. Uh, It became obvious that in her words, we needed to level up uh, relative to our our business model and that it became obvious to us that that our stakeholder partnerships were so important that we needed to formalize partnerships uh, like we have with Wayside Mental Health Services, uh, just to name one, so that we could not only broaden the scope of services that we're bringing to the public, but also so that we could formalize them and deepen the level of care that people had access to. So we have done that uh, over the past uh, year, year and a half. And it's, it's amazing what has happened as a result of Jen Knight coming on full time. Yeah. Just to remind you, I'm speaking today with Jim Derrick and Jen Knight Levine from the Safe Coalition. And we're here on Safe Radio. Can you speak because it's clearly started as a volunteer um, organization, which means not a lot of funding. How do you, how do you support all of the, the efforts that you're putting out? Where, where does that come from? State Representative Jeff Roy started by getting us uh, our first grant, uh, and we're now on our fourth grant of $50,000, courtesy of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, funded through the Department of Public Health right now. And that's that's where the lion's share of our funding has come from. But we also have many other grant opportunities, both private and public. We do. And this is as we've been listening to the community and hearing the community needs, it helps us laser focus on the style of funding that we're looking for. Um, and so we have been able to access community grants to provide specific resources to specific communities. And the town of Franklin actually has been an incredible partner with us, especially this year. Um, the town of Franklin recognized the level and amount of resources that were being provided to families and individuals in the community and 
created a space for the Safe Coalition as a line item. Um, and so the town of Franklin is providing a significant amount of funds to the Safe Coalition to provide direct resources. And those resources really go to prevention and education mm -hmm. for youth and for caretakers. And it has allowed us to bring in folks in the community who may not be receiving services and support. So we have a grandparents raising grandchildren group and now grandparents and grand grandparents raising grandchildren are able to have access to attorneys and DCF workers and um, benefits managers where before they may not have had that. Um, so each one of these grant opportunities has really been a way for us to offer new and necessary supports in the community. Um, Jim had mentioned our need to level up. And really when we started six years ago, we were hyper-focused on supporting an individual. And then that shifted and we were hyper-focused on supporting the family system. And now looking over the past six years, we've really focused on prevention and education, treatment opportunities, long-term recovery options and family systems care. And we've been able to do that through this idea of leveling up and becoming more focused on the bigger picture. And part of that has been creating systems and, and programming um, that allow for data collection and allowing us to create a space for information to be shared and to be seen in the larger community has been really helpful. One of the things I was going to, as I listened to you, and I think the message we have to get out is how huge this problem is. Because, you know, in terms of a pandemic and what we're dealing with, mental health, and this is huge. I think people need to hear that, that substance use disorder has not gone away. Mental health issues in, 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 the, in the world today, but especially in our country today. Can you speak to that? Because we, we've got to get the word out in terms of where we need to establish our priorities out there and where the government has to be putting money and the, and the resources that schools need. You get these phone calls from families, you hear the anguish, you know what's going on. Can you kind of get that message out and, and let the kind of the world know that this is a huge problem we're dealing with? So, I'm so thankful that you brought that up, Anne. So again, six years ago, the coalition was hyper-focused on substance use support and mainly as it related to opioid addiction. As the substance use spectrum opened up for us, so did the understanding of, the, of mental health. And very quickly, we recognized that in order for us to be able to support folks that struggled with substance use, we really needed to get closely connected with an organization that focused on mental health, both with training the volunteers and staff at the coalition and also as a pipeline to get folks the, the necessary support that they needed in a short amount of time. Jim had mentioned this earlier that we at the coalition wanted to focus on listening to the community needs and developing supports around that. And a theme that we continue to hear is that while their loved one was struggling with substance use, they also could not get an appointment to provide mental health care within three months time. And so we really wanted to break down that barrier. So the only way that we could figure out a way to do that 
was to partner with a local organization. So we were um, provided an opportunity to apply for a Department of Justice federal grant that would provide clinical support for kids five to 18 who were impacted by substance use. And we were able to do that with Wayside Youth and Family Services in Milford. We were awarded this grant and that grant has really been the the opening for us to provide both substance use and mental health care through the coalition and actually has led now to a second Department of Justice grant where we're able to provide domestic violence and sexual assault care. And you had mentioned the pandemic and, and how this has impacted substance use and mental health. And not only has it increased isolation, which has increased substance use and has increased um, many mental health symptoms, but has also increased domestic violence and sexual Mm -hmm. assault and decreased the opportunity for people to get care. So in looking at the um, DCF lines of support where you have mandated reporters and kids are at school, Kids are not at school right now, so access to getting kids support has decreased. We don't have kids in after-school programs like we did, and so the ability for folks to see parents and interact after school has decreased. We don't see kids on sports teams right now like we did, so the access that coaches had to see families and kids in systems has decreased. And so, you know, what, what I'm really trying to say here is that the pandemic has increased isolation, has increased mental health systems, has increased the use of substances, especially alcohol. Um, and really the availability of care has decreased. And so what we're hoping to do through the coalition is continue to remind folks that we are here and that we are an area of support. Two months ago, or three months ago, rather, we partnered with our local police and fire, 12 towns. We partnered with 12 police and fire communities, and we gave them a business card. And on that business card was a QR code. And what we were hearing from Mm -hmm. local fire and police is that they are responding to substance use calls and also recognizing that there's a domestic violence piece or a mental health piece or a sexual assault piece. And that during that substance use call, those folks are being attended to in a substance use capacity. So maybe there's an overdose or maybe someone's intoxicated. But these other real concerns aren't being addressed. Mm -hmm. And so we were able, in partnership with Wayside, able to create a QR code and place that on a business card. And any first responder can hand that to someone that they see and that QR code can be scanned and they can get immediate services for substance use, mental health, domestic violence, or sexual assault within 24 hours. That's incredible, Jen. And to be able to to do that in our communities is wonderful. And to be able to sustain that is going to be necessary. And so our job, Jim and I, is to go after those grant opportunities and to reach out to our community partners to be able to provide sustainable opportunities for support and treatment that that didn't exist prior to the the epidemic. And and alcohol is a huge piece of that. Mm -hmm. We saw twice as many calls in regards to adult alcohol use after the 4th of July of this past year. 
Our growth is in direct proportion to how per- pervasive this problem is. We continue to grow. We have more and more communities asking for our services. We started out in the towns of Franklin, Medway, and, and Milford. Uh, we have now morphed into, a, into an organization that's supporting 11 communities. Because the problem is so pervasive, the more the public has responded saying, yeah, we have the problem too. Stigma reduces, the landscape changes, and the key is, I think what we've done is we've tapped into that vein that says, yeah, we destigmatize this, we're going to reduce the stigma, we're going to start talking about it publicly, we're going to give our community a safe place, or as Jen says, a safe container to bring their concerns, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, their problems, start those conversations, then get back out in the community and start problem solving together. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think, the power of coalitions. Jen, if you can, if you can really talk about sort of the, the services that are offered and the things that you do, because I think people need to see everything that goes into the Safe Coalition. Is that? Can you share that with us and let us know? The Safe Coalition really wants to provide support to anyone who's impacted by substance use. And so the way that we want to do that is to provide groups, various community supports and recovery opportunities for those impacted. So we have support groups that meet during the evenings for family members who are impacted by a loved one's addiction. We provide education and prevention opportunities to individual families, to school systems, to police and fire programs. Um, And we also really want to be a layer of support to those who have lived experience. And so that means that someone um, is either in long-term recovery or early recovery or is actively seeking to be in recovery. And we do that by by our lived experience, by our partnerships um, with clinical services. And we provide a host of opportunities and learning engagements for those professionals in our communities. So police and fire, doctors roundtables, um, health and PE department roundtables. Um, so we really want to be a direct support for those impacted overall by substance use. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Jen and I always struggle with is how do we get everything that we do into a soundbite? And the bottom Absolutely. line is if people think uh, that we can in- help in any way relative to uh, concerns that they or a loved one have about substance use disorder, if they want to be part of the solution, or if they just want to find out more about what it is that we do, they can always go to our website, which is Safe Coalition, M as in Mary, A as in Apple, safecoalitionma.org. They can check us out on Facebook. We're there under Safe Coalition. They can call us. Our support line is 508 488 8105. Uh, you can reach us there and ask us any questions that you might have. A lot of what we do is consultative. So we get called in um, by families, by uh, school systems, by communities with questions. And we are able to, through our resources and our connections and our own uh, subject matter expertise, usually help uh, with concerns. And I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, we uh, realized that the school systems were struggling with vaping. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jen uh, took it upon herself to go out and uh, work with Stanford University and another <laughs> curriculum called Y-Try and put together a wonderful program, which is available now to both the general public and to school systems, uh, where we 
we'll take those that have struggling with vaping. Maybe they're in disciplinary. Uh, there's a there's a reason disciplinary reason why they come to us. Oftentimes they come to us uh, simply because they want more information. We'll teach them about vaping and and ask them the more social emotional. We'll have more of a social emotional conversation about the why. We're we're honoring this as as what it is. We're calling it what it is, and that's an addiction. It's not. Uh, just a, a kid wanting to misbehave. When you're inhaling a vape that has the equivalent of 20 cigarettes in it and one cartridge, you're developing a real dependence on nicotine. And uh, so when Jen came to the schools, it was so interesting to see this. When Jen introduced this idea to schools, it was great to see how receptive they were because suddenly it was mm-hmm. like the light was dawning that, wow, this isn't just kids misbehaving, but this is a real substance use disorder. This is a real addiction and we need to treat it as such. So we've developed a vaping classroom and we've uh, developed um, some marijuana education, uh, both for the impacted individual, in this case, a student and their parents. And uh, it's really gone a long way. So that's a good illustration of what we're able to do in responding to the needs of the community. Safe radio, reclaiming hope in these challenging times. Tell us about the mission of this series of programs and what the what the reason for doing this is and what you plan, um, we all plan to do with, um, with the message that we want to get out. Tell us about that. What we want to do, Ann, is we want to bring a program to the community, which highlights a different aspect of substance use disorder, mental health, and wellness systems that have been created around those issues on a regular basis. And we want to continue the conversation with the public in a way that's accessible. We're going to have guests. We're going to have all types of guests on, all the way from mental health professionals, people in long-term recovery, anybody in that entire system of care we want to bring to the table, stakeholders, important stakeholders, so that we can all learn together about the communal systems of support that we need to develop in order to help support a healthy community and long-term recovery. That makes a lot of sense. And I know that as we go forward and, and, um, in this program uh, that as an educator, um, what I really want us to talk about and to focus on is helping particularly young people understand emotions and understand that, that life is, is going to always be challenging. And it's how to deal with sort of the, the, the um, slings and arrows that come at them through life. And they do not they too often don't understand their emotions. They don't understand these feelings of anxiety and and depression and sadness. They don't know how to regulate their emotions. They don't know how to deal with that. And And again, they think they're alone. But to the extent that we can help them recognize those feelings, get through those feelings, find different ways to cope before they reach for the substances, before they try to soothe themselves and calm those feelings, from wherever they come, you know, whatever the cause is. But the more we can focus on the prevention piece too and and helping particularly young people understand those emotions, I think I think this program is going to be so powerful. I really do. And I think uh, it's so important. I really do. I couldn't agree more, Ian. And, and um, I, I, I think that, you know, I'm just so appreciative of the opportunity to be able to share with people uh, what it is that's going on. Because again, as somebody who, suffered in silence for a long time and had no place to go. Uh, Here I am six years later speaking on the radio Mm -hmm. with people that are, that are welcome, welcoming me to the table 
uh, and I'm actually part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a, it's just been an amazing tra- trajectory. My number one goal is that families don't suffer in silence, is that we bring about understanding in our community that this is uh, not just a problem with an individual. It's not a behavioral problem. It's an actual illness that the family didn't cause it. They didn't create it and they can't cure it. Okay. But there is, that's the bad news. The good news is there is real restorative healing and there's a whole community just waiting to embrace you. Should you be faced with any of these concerns, please connect with the safe coalition. We can connect you with wonderful partners like learn to cope or our friends at road to recovery, various support groups for families. Uh, soon we're hoping to be able to support siblings in those family uh in that family dynamic and certainly your loved one that's struggling. We want to support them so that they can live a long life of recovery. Just know you're not alone. Just know that we're here to welcome you and just know that with our key community stakeholders, like the Franklin public schools, like the Franklin police, like our community partners, we we're all in this thing together and we've developed a communal understanding uh, to be able to raise this illness out of the weeds and call it what it is. And that's an illness. Well said. And, and you said it, it's, we're all in this together and you are not alone. And this has been an incredible program. And thank you. Thank you, Jen, uh, for all that you do every single day and for being here today. And you have two babies and you're, <laughs> you give your heart and soul to the, to the work that you do. We're just so proud of you. We're so proud of you. And uh, thank you for being here today and, and sharing all of your experience and your passion and your wisdom. And we're greatly appreciative. Thank you. Thank you for, for having the space to hear all of this and listen to it and know how important it is that we share all of the lessons that we've learned with other people, because if we hold it in, we won't help each other. Absolutely. My name is Ann Bergen. Thank you so much for joining us today and be sure to join us next week on Safe Radio. Safe Radio.